Welcome to the Present Fathers Podcast. This is the show that focuses on climbing the mountain of fatherhood together. We believe that dads matter. That's why this show is for you. So gear up, dads. Get ready. It's time to start climbing. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Present Fathers Podcast. Our guest is Frankie Rousseau. Frankie, welcome to the show, man. How are you? Oh, thank you, George. Uh, Happy to be here. Looking forward to it, man. So uh, let me quickly introduce you to our audience who may not know you, but Frankie Rousseau is a, uh, I'd say, a serial investor, entrepreneur, uh, really successful. You wrote a big book called uh, Breaking Why. I believe it was Amazon's uh, on the list of top sellers. And, uh, you know, you're a father, blended family. So we're going to talk about that. And uh, you are also a personal friend of the Blintons. You've known, uh, I think, Justin the longest, right? So yeah. uh, welcome to the show, man. We're really looking forward to hearing from your story, learning from you, and uh, just talking about fatherhood. So awesome. Uh, Brandon, wow. I think, actually had the the leading questions for you. He's been working on this one for a while. So I'll kick it over to I, Brandon. I, I, I can't wait to hear what I have to say after all that. well frankie man thank you for coming on uh really appreciate it um i wanted to dive right into uh the beginning of of your story as far as like your 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 blended family let's go into that real quick so so start start off with that if you don't mind yeah so it starts it's uh how far back like the birds and the bees or what do you mean (laughs) (laughs) okay gotcha i don't know i don't know that's a whole separate episode we'll have to do that one later how, yeah. how to have that conversation with your how kids. How to become a father, literally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm really good at it. Um, I, I apparently can only have girls uh, biologically. I have two amazing yeah. sons, stepsons. Uh, they're eight years old. They're twins. Uh, but I've, I've had two different marriages, tried to have kids with two different women, and they're always girls. So it's clearly me who's the problem. Uh, but <laughs> girls are awesome. Being a, a, a dad to girls is awesome. But the the beautiful thing about my life now is that I get to have have it both ways. I've got two twin boys and then I have uh, four girls ranging from uh, the age five up to 13. So we're still really in the heat of the battle. Um, Amazing case study on what to do, what not to do. And uh, yeah, so really loving life at this point. Uh, The journey to get to a blended family is quite a journey uh, because obviously you got to go through a divorce to do that. But I will tell you that my journey is not not necessarily everyone's journey. But for me, I got married really young. So I got married at 18, came from a religious background. Uh, don't have sex until you're married. You know, if you're going to date, that means you're also courting for marriage. Uh, so don't don't F it up. You know what I'm saying? And so that was kind of the deal. Right. That's that's what you did. So I got married young. And in hindsight, you know, the one thing I would tell my kids, because I've thought a lot about this, I got divorced uh, six years ago. So what it was is that I kind of came to this crossroads after having three kids, which is pretty crazy. Um, and I just couldn't continue on and also live wholeheartedly. And so a lot of my journey was a lot less about my relationship, a lot more with authenticity. And ironically, the first book I wrote, The Art of Why, I wrote it right before I got divorced. So it was interesting because that book was called Master Your Purpose. So I still kind of laugh at it because it was like, everyone said, by the way, don't write a book to your 40. How old are you, Brandon? I'm 38. (laughs) 38. Good. You're close enough. So I was like, I'm not going to listen to those people. They don't know what they're talking about. Um, So I wrote a book at 35 and 
had it not been for the fact that it allows for me to have two books, I would have scorched the earth with the first book uh, because I, it was the climax of me thinking I knew what the hell was going on in life and, and how to navigate this life and master your purpose. And I, I couldn't have been further from it in the moment I released it. Uh, but Hey, that's part of the journey. I mean, quite frankly, that writing that book was very difficult. That first one, I had a lot of ghostwriters and, you know, it was, it was difficult because I was literally just trying to kind of write a book and check the box and all that fun stuff. And I was checking all kinds of boxes, you know, bought a big house. That's now I live next to Justin. Uh, and uh, literally two months later, it was like, I looked in the mirror and was like, what, what the hell is going on here? Because I had kind of checked all the boxes and, and it was, it was scary. And so that, that's really where that journey began of like going from the picture perfect, uh, scenario, right. Doing all the right things for all the people. Um, and pretty good at it, to be honest. I was, I was really good at being everything I needed to be for everybody else. Um, and that's not a sustainable life. Um, right. and it comes at, a, it comes at a cost, even though I thought that that was how you make everyone happy. And then everybody's happy. We were joking before we hit record, like happy wife, happy life. Um, happy I don't know about that. House. You know, that's it, man. <laughs> Yeah. Happy spouse, happy house. I don't know. Money maybe can buy you happiness. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but you know, it was, it was interesting and it was a difficult journey. I wouldn't wish that transition to where I was, went from having three kids to having six kids. I wouldn't wish that transition on my worst enemy. Uh, but mostly because of the, the journey I had to go on to, to become my authentic self. And quite frankly, a lot of people to this day don't really like me, uh, especially from, that community of people that expected me to be a certain way. And I don't blame them. I, I created this world that in some ways I let them down because they were expecting me to be X and I ended up being Y and not everybody is um, comfortable with that. And I had to make some really hard decisions to be authentic to myself, be honest. Um, and it's actually surprisingly made me a better father. Because the truth is you can stay together and a lot of people suggest this. And I know this is, this is a very long answer to your question, but I hope that's okay. Um, totally fine. But it'll set the stage for some of this stuff because here's the deal. Um, a lot of people told me some very surprising things when I went through my divorce. They're like, why don't you just make an arrangement? Or why don't you just wait till the kids get out of high school or things like that, right? And it was, it was one of those things where it, I would have loved to do that, but I couldn't get back into the box. Once I was awakened to what my reality was, I, I couldn't go back. And, and it happens to people when they get together too young and maybe for the wrong reasons. Um, and you, you try your best, but it, some things aren't right to try to force. And that's where I found myself and it was difficult, but the, the person I was able to be on the other side is um is worth it and and that person is somebody who is the same no matter what room i'm in and i was never able to be that and and quite frankly it was a person who was driven by what everybody else wanted and thought um and today when people uh 
don't like me or think certain things about me. I, I've finally become immune to it. Um, and I can still love them and I don't have to take offense to it. And that's a, that's a good, healthy, clean way to live. Now I will tell you the trade-off in my experience with the authenticity deal, where you get to a point where you no longer care what people think about you. It's possible to achieve that. I, I, I live that now it's one day at a time, but I am living that right now. However, I had to trade also the things that people say good about me. So the things people say good about me that used to play on my ego, that it was a rush or an adrenaline or it felt good. I will say, I don't feel that anymore either. So you have to trade both out. You can't have them both ways. Like I have to be, I had to lay down the obsessive addiction to people approving me or the addiction to having people love me or think that I'm doing a good job. You lay that down and you can lay the other one down with it. So anyway, that's a super long answer. Uh, the, the baby is, is the yours is the ours. So you got the yours, mine and ours, uh, the baby right. at five is ours. So no, that's a great yeah, answer. The, yep. Modern Brady bunch. Yeah, Listen, and, so, so one thing that you've mentioned, you said you were doing everything for everyone, but yourself. And that's mm -hmm. kind of a clarifying statement. What were some of the tribulations or events that kind of made you aware that you were doing that? <clears throat> yeah. So, I mean, the first time that happened, I've gone in stages with this, right? So the first time I realized I was like too focused on, um, everyone else was the levels I went to, to hide my drug addiction and alcoholism. So in my twenties, what I didn't mention was at 26, almost 27, I got sober and that really is, um, something that is the first time I realized how much I was, what links I was willing to go to, to, to make, to appease people. Like, so my first wife, like didn't believe in drugs at all. She thought that crack or heroin was the same level as smoking weed, you know? So, you know, anything was bad. Right. So I, I hid years of addiction, like right in, right in plain daylight, um, where she couldn't see it, but it was like a huge thing. And I, and I was willing to, to, um, what's the word, I guess we could say compromise myself from an honesty and authenticity space. And so I thought once I got sober, that that would kind of fix that. And it did for a little while, you know, getting sober was, was, was a huge part of my story. Uh, what I've realized since then is that the part that was big, um, about getting sober was less about me getting sober and staying sober for the last 15 years and more about the hundreds of guys I've been able to help get sober. Um, that's been a huge part of my journey, um, that eventually led to the, the next bottom, which was when I got my divorce. Um, and it was a little bit of a controversy. I fell in love with the person who's now my wife, Justin's neighbor. Um, and so that, that was, didn't make it any easier. You know, that's where a lot of the kind of Christian pitchforks came out. Um, I tried to, to fix it. I tried to go back and, and it was actually, you know, speaking very vulnerably, like that was something that was really hard on, on Tracy, my wife now, uh, cause I really was trying to be authentic. I was desperately trying to be authentic. And so what that looked like was like trying to get back in the box, trying to fix it. And, and again, people were like, 
you know, why don't you just, you know, make an arrangement or whatever, whatever. And I was like, no, you don't get it. Like I'm, I'm not just out of my mind right now. I'm not, I'm stone cold sober and I'm realizing I don't want to live like this anymore, you know? And so I always say that, you know, what I went through in 2017 was not that different from anyone else. The difference is that I was willing to do it out in the open. And that is painful at first, but sets you free at a level that you're, you're, you're immune. Like the, all the people in the world that, that I was worried about letting down, I let them down and they're probably still let down. And what a great way to live. Yeah. I mean, I guess since I've been, I've, I've been through a divorce. I don't know if you did that. I don't think I ever told you that, but no, I didn't. Uh, George, George and Dustin were there for me. They, they knew my ex-wife. Uh, they were there every step. And I can say that I can relate to some of the things you just said, because authenticity is like, you have to be true to yourself before you can be true to others. And I, I think the thing that kind of touched home, and, and I actually have a question based off of that is, do you think that you gave so much of yourself to others that you never gave to yourself? Does that make sense? That you felt mm -hmm. empty because you were, you just filled other people's cups and not your own. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh no, it makes total sense. And I've thought a lot about that. Um, I think a lot of it boils down to motives, like why I was giving. So when I've given of myself, like, let's say like for sobriety, right. Where I am volunteering essentially for an anonymous un unspoken role of helping somebody. There's not a lot of motives other than like, what I get back in return. Right. So that, and that's a, that's a clean, unconditional setting for being able to practice unconditional love, right. To actually help somebody that's in need or that's poor. So when you think about that, that type of stuff always has paid for me. It's more where I try to help others that with conditions. So when I, anytime I've helped others with conditions, that's usually the setup that's when I don't feel fulfilled. So now it's like, if I can't help someone unconditionally, I'm okay with not helping them, you know? And, and, and that sometimes is becomes the boundary. Um, I'm blessed enough to have, you know, a family, a wife, and six kids, um, that I love somewhat unconditionally. It's still somewhat conditional, right? No matter how you split it. Um, and then I exercise outside of the family, an opportunity to help men, get sober and essentially find God, to be honest. Um, and so that I have both of those that are very fulfilling for me. Um, I talk about that a lot in my books and essentially that's the, the lifeblood of what I believe our highest human purposes. I'm actually going to touch on something you just said there. So I struggled, uh, with the commitment I made before God, um, with my previous marriage. Mm -hmm. That's actually something I, I talked very in depth with George about. Um, was that something that really, really weighed on your heart a lot when you, when you're going through the divorce? Because I know for me personally, it was not easy to carry that weight. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. I mean, that weighed unnaturally high on it that like I was somehow severing my connection with God. Um, and it, it took me a solid six months to get there on the journey and go through all the different things I, you know, hired therapists to like, you know, do intensives with me I had two therapists at the same time, like 
went to do experiential therapy in Tennessee. I mean, I was throwing everything at it. And uh, in the end, it was actually my dad. Because uh, my dad... So I got a little glimpse of what it feels like to come out of the closet when I went through this. And coming out of the closet, I, I have a new appreciation for people that do that. And, and they absolutely have it worse than me. So I'm not comparing what I went through to that in any way for anyone who's listening. Uh, because it's not, it's not at the same level. I got a glimpse of it, but my dad did come out of the closet after being married for 33 years and in ministry, by the way. Um, so he's, you know, the, the pitchforks are so much bigger and so much hotter for him than me as far as, and I'm not talking about the devil's pitchforks. I mean like the locals. Uh, but, um, so it was actually him. Cause I asked him, I was like, man, how do you, how do you deal with that? Like, because I was, I kept thinking and telling him, it's like, I know in my heart that like the God that I believe in will forgive me. And so why am I wrestling with it? And he said, um, and I don't know why this just, this just stuck with me. He said, at some point you've got to forgive yourself. And in that moment, like something just broke. And like, ever since then, like my journey as a person who doesn't have to hide who I am anymore or any of that was set free. And essentially that's what it comes down to. The shame is predominantly self-inflicted. I mean, because now that I look back, like lately, like ironically, like just recently, um, I've been every night reading from this little illustrated Bible to the kids. And like, this is very new for me. And like, not this, I'm not, I'm not like that guy, right? Like I go to church twice a year. Um, and again, nothing against church. And I actually believe in a lot of that stuff, but I'm, you know, I just am cut a little different. It's, and it, it's the product of being a minister's child, right? I was grew up in homeless shelters doing ministry. So most preacher's kids are a little off. A lot of them are worse than me. I'm not going to name their names on the air, but you know who you are if you're listening. Um, but uh, <laughs> anyway, I've been reading these children's stories. And what's, what's awesome about it is that they don't have, have a lot of color in them and they skip a lot of stories. Like when you're doing David, King David, it's like he does a slingshot. Uh, then he writes some songs and they leave out anything about Bathsheba and, and all that fun stuff, you know? So I don't, I don't color in the Bathsheba stuff, but I do take liberty in like helping them understand some of the stuff that's not in there. Um, that's really good stuff. And I've been really enjoying that. So I, I don't know why I just brought that up, but it, it's been one of those things that has surprised me. And like my wife just loves it. The kids love it. Uh, it's such a simple little thing. And what's funny is my kids are in, have been in every private school in Lafayette. And so I, I told my wife, if we switch schools one more time, she's going to have to start Tracy's list, which is essentially like a way for me to make money on all the different information we have on every school. I'm talking Episcopal, Baptist, uh, classical, Renaissance, non-denominational. We've been to so many schools. But what was cool is like every story in this book, my two twin boys, they know it, right? So like, I didn't realize that about them. I knew, you know, my first wife, she's, you know, she's doesn't miss a church service, right? So I know my other three girls, they know all the stories, right? But they know them, you know, exactly how they're told. But I was surprised. And, and it was actually the Catholics 
God bless their heart. I said, look, I told my wife that last night. I said, you got some good Catholic boys. Now, she took them out of Catholic school because she went into the whole worship and Mary thing. But uh, she now they're Episcopal, by the way, which is like so much better. (laughs) But um, anyway, so it's been cool because they do already know the stories and they're in second grade. You know, they already know a lot of that stuff, but it's actually the, the stuff in between the stories that I think is what's so gold in that. And I haven't. I haven't really been in a space where I was really talking about that stuff in such a, uh, <laughs> I see that Dustin. <laughs> I, I love it, man. Yeah. No, as, as we should, as we should. <laughs> so it's, it's funny. You mentioned your dad in that whole situation. So my father and I took a walk when I was contemplating what I was going to do because it was such a pivotal part of my life and it, it completely changed my world. And I'll never forget this. My father said, look, Justin, are you happy? I said, no, dad, I'm not happy. And I have a wonderful father. He's always been involved in our lives. Brandon can attest to this. He's, he's just been, he, he had a crap upbringing, just horrible story. Just anything that could go wrong in his life went wrong. And yep. so he never, he never let anything translate to our generation. And I'm so appreciative because he's the one person I trusted as my best friend to just go and be raw with. Cause I had like friends that were like, Justin, I don't recognize who you are. This is not the person I grew up with. I get hurt. Like my best friend, Harold told me he's been, I've known him since kindergarten. He's like, dude, I don't even recognize who you are. And I'm like, Ooh. So I asked my dad, I said, do you recognize who I am? He said, yeah, you're just lost. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay. And I said, well, how do I get found again? And he started laughing and he, and we were just on this. I'll never forget. It. I was, uh, it's right around this time of year. It was just getting cooler. He said, uh, the way you get found is, is, uh, it's like, just pray about it. So I started praying and I was like, what, what's the answer? You know, like, and, and surely I started seeing signs and, and things. And, uh, he said, look, do what's on your heart and, uh, stop listening to your brain so much. And so I did, I did what was on my heart. And unfortunately I, uh, I, I did get the divorce, but it led me to where I'm at. And I'll never forget. He said, he said, look, Justin, you're a bright guy. You're in the medical field. He's like, you may end up marrying a doctor. Jokes aside, I ended up marrying a pediatric dentist. Obviously, you know Mm -hmm. that. And now we have our beautiful son. And in seven weeks, we'll have our daughter. So it's like all these things that he said, don't be afraid of taking that launch. I didn't realize you guys were expecting. Yeah, yeah, man. Ainsley's uh, Ainsley's doing seven, eight weeks. Now you decided yourself. You got to get something on the registry now. Yeah, Uh, that. But also tell Ainsley that I didn't even notice. So, (laughs) hey, you just won brownie (laughs) points, my friend. (laughs) I didn't even mean I didn't even mean to do that, but I make sure she knows. I had no idea. <laughs> She's going to love you for that. But yeah. Uh, yeah. We got a little girl on the way. Sophia, uh, awesome. Sophia Scott. Yeah. Yeah. That's so awesome. uh, we're excited, but like just my life took a complete 180 just because I had a great father who who gave me great advice and, and believed in me and said, Hey, look, take the step that you feel is right for you. And so that's what I did. It, like you said, it's authenticity to yourself. And, and that was the hardest, hardest step to take is being oh. authentic to yourself. I can't, I can't describe how much stress and how much angst and everything you feel being torn between people's viewpoints, caring about what other people think, what you think about yourself or what you think about God, just all those factors play in and it it weighs so, so heavy. And then you stop and think. And like, I think one of the things that I I thought to myself and my brother Jordan kind of helped me with was, you know, what are the things Christ would do in your situations? Like, mm-hmm. you know, think, think about like how heavy things were for him versus how heavy it is for you. And I was like, Ooh, nothing, nothing I have is heavy at all. If I think about that, like, 
So, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, if he can carry all that, you know, I can carry this. So, yeah, it ended up working out. So I, I appreciate what you said, uh, you know, about your father and everything and, and going to him for advice, because I'm telling you what, that's what we base this show off is, is fathers and the advice they give. I mean, sometimes it's not the greatest advice, but it's advice and it's somebody you trust and you know has always got yeah. your back as long as they're yeah. a good father and being present, man. That's that's what we preach. If if you're a present father, just being present, whether the advice is good or not, is something that helps your child. You know, absolutely. I mean? So absolutely. And uh, and not not feeling alone in that moment when you're going through that is critical. Hundred percent. Especially if it's from a father. Yeah. And if you're not being authentic, you can have a hundred friends and you'll still feel alone because they're not really being with you. They're being with the person you're pretending to be. So I struggled with that for years. I think I had prom queen syndrome. I wanted everyone to like me. And so I said, mm -hmm. whatever it took for people to like me. And that led to, if not, you know, some form of dishonesty than just outright lies, because I knew this is what I have to say for people to like me. So I think I had some of your experience when I was younger. What I wonder though, is can you be someone who genuinely doesn't care about what other people think when you're a young man can be a 12, a 15, a 20 year old man and just do that? Or do you have to earn it? Do you have to get to a point where you've, you're successful, where it doesn't matter? Because at some point, I think for younger men or for less successful men, if you don't care about what other people think, you may be in a position to get fired or you know, be, you might not get through yeah. school. And so I wonder, you know, is it a season of life? Do you have to earn the right to not care what other people think? Yeah, so I, I'll answer that a, a couple ways. So first of all, um, I want you, I want to kind of clarify: not caring what people think does not mean that like I don't um, honor people that I care about, right? Or even people I don't care about. What I, it's not that I don't look at it because one thing that I I don't want to give the impression on is that I'm in that like mindset of like, you know. F them. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't give a shit what anybody thinks kind of thing. You know, like that type of mentality. That's not what I'm, that's not authenticity. So I, I hear them and I see them and I don't allow it to affect the way that I look at myself unless it's feedback that is useful. Right. So usually I just, I, I, my easy litmus test is that I only take feedback from people that I actually want to be like. Or that I trust, you know, if I don't know you and you're just giving me feedback on social media, you know, or I had this crazy situation where like somebody yelled out in the middle of a talk recently that I was doing in New Orleans. Uh, we'll circle back to that because I don't want to derail this answer, but uh, it was interesting. Anyway, th when those things happen, um, do you have to earn it? Yes, to a degree you do have to earn it, but not with success. Okay, because a lot of the people that I work with, I've seen them become free from from that those chains of what people think about me mattering so much without getting successful from like a money standpoint or having things and any of that stuff. They they still have nothing, but they have God, they have sobriety and they have a community and they are already starting to get some of the same things I have. So I don't think it's necessarily tied to um having stuff it's but it's absolutely tied to experiences that you kind of have to go through um and i think it's the it's almost like the order of things right like most of us on, on this call are i think north of 35 is everybody north of 35 essentially yeah george are you north of 35 yes okay so yeah we're north of well, 35 sorry anyway. sorry 10 days and i'm 35 yeah so whatever you're you're right there 
write, write a book called Mastering Your Purpose and you'll be there. So um, that's how old I was at 35. That's easy. Nothing to it. You got ChatGPT. I didn't have ChatGPT. All right. I had to pay full freight for my ghostwriter. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. Now it's easy. I'm going to write three books a year. But anyway. Um, Brandon's so, going to have 12. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Dustin, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think you earn it through experiences. I don't think you earn it necessarily like getting to a point where you can be like, you know, I don't care what you think about me. Cause I'm like the man it's, it, it can't be an ego thing. Cause it, it will fail every time. That is a really important nuance to consider. Definitely. Yeah. You mm-hmm. never want to think, you know, you still need to take criticism and if you're making a mistake, you need to take that in. So yeah, no, I think that's an, important Oh God. Yeah. No, I, I, I take a lot of feedback by the way. Like it's, it, it's, it's really the, the negative like if somebody doesn't like me, right. Or they don't like my book or they don't like my talk, or they think that like, you know, this guy that was yelling at me, I'll just tell you guys, cause he's probably not watching this podcast, but if he is, listen, I love you, man. Uh, but <laughs> here's the thing. It, this is a, this guy's from Canada. He's, it was a talk to 600 people that are in a union. Okay. They're electrical workers. And you guys are, some of you guys are from Louisiana. Okay. So I, I, most people in Louisiana don't really know, what a union is barely. And, and I got referred to this thing and I was just going to do a motivational talk. It was supposed to be a quick 20 minute mic drop. I even had a t-shirt gun and, and we were shooting t-shirts out the gun, uh, at the end, um, which was awesome. But like somewhere in the middle of it, I was talking about imagination and how to unlock that. And I have this exercise called what if, and it's like, you know, what if money didn't matter? Or what if like time and space wasn't a thing? What, 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 what could we do? What, what would you do? And this guy starts yelling, I would end capitalism. Capitalism's the problem. And uh, how much, how many union employees do you employ? And how much union busting have you done? And I was like, first of all, I didn't even know half the stuff he was saying. Uh, so I just had to kind of pause. But, and then he walked out, thank God. But that type of moment, it's like, what just happened in front of 600 people? Like, what? And they apologized and all that fun stuff. It turns out the, there's some guy named Frank Russo from uh, up north that made millions in the 90s as a union busting, which I don't even know what that was. And so there's this whole Reddit now of Frank, Frankie Russo, this crazy venture capitalist that was hired by the unions to do a motivational speak. He's comes from a legacy of union busters, by the way. So there's a, I have a Reddit now. I wasn't even on Reddit before this. So like, there's all these like people that hate me because I'm apparently I'm a capitalist and, and my uncle who's dead now. was not really my uncle, by the way, if you're listening, I'm not married to Frank Russo. Who's a union buster. So, but you know, there you go. So it's like, I could have let that just demolish me. Like, man, should I not do talks anymore? Like, am I a capitalist? You know, am I doing the wrong thing? You know, you, and, and you have a minute where it's like, what the fuck just happens? You have to bleep that out, George. But, um, but then it's like you recover from it because it's like, well, I, we we missed an opportunity. We should have introduced you, Frankie Russo, capital. The <laughs> union buster. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, 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 apparently, I googled, apparently, I'm the problem. I googled Frank Russo, and <laughs> you did me. not come I'm up. He he came up. There's yeah. I I I can see what you're talking about. There was a lot of uh, visceral articles. I'll put it like that. Apparently, he's yeah. passed away now. Um, yeah, yeah, 2000. And there was a lot of articles about like you know, oh, this criminal dude has passed away now. Blah, blah. Anyway, and I was like, I don't think that's who we're interviewing. Let me uh, no, double check no. the spelling here. Add, and... You got to add the IE, and then it, it's a whole yeah. different. Uh, yeah, add the IE. Oh, oh, there he is. Okay, all right, that looks yeah, right. There's the good stuff. <laughs> yeah. So luckily, I'm that's an unfortunate quid- coincidence for you. <laughs> so kind of an interesting. Yeah. 
it happens. Go ahead, Dustin. Sorry. So kind of an interesting change that happened recently on uh, Twitter X is that you can make money for impressions. So essentially, the more people look at your stuff, the the more money you make. And so when people comment, that is what pushes your information to the top. So if someone likes your post, if they repost it, any of that kind of stuff, doesn't matter. But if someone comments on your post, you to the moon, right? With it. So your haters are literally making you money. When someone, if you mm. post, you know, I like capitalism. I love it. Someone says, I need to get I on X. Yeah, literally, they're helping you make money. It's it's amazing. So literally, your haters are your best friends because if people like you, they're just going to click like and just leave it alone, right? Oh, nice, whatever. It doesn't help you. But if someone legitimately is so angry that they feel the need to post something hateful in response, they're literally printing money for you. So your haters are actually your best friend on social oh, media. In that, sense. that was a really kind of cool way to think about it. You shouldn't yeah. have told me that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Justin is about to go find that Reddit thing and like really light it up. <laughs> but, you know, if you when you hang back, there, there, if you look at it, there's there was a whole lot of people that came and apologized. There's people on the Reddit like saying, you know, when you're when your motives are pure. I mean, I, I was only in that room. I, I didn't make a lot of money from that, you know, and not in the grand scheme of like the kind of money I've made in my life. And like, I'm, I'm doing it because it's a calling and I want to help the people in that room. And I, I kept going because there were 598 other people in the room that maybe not all of them were, were wanting something, but some of them were there and I got hired to do a job. And it's like, I'm not going to stop because one person or his table is going to run off because at the end of the day, like the work that we do, I mean, for God's sakes, I'm, I'm calling out authenticity, imagination and generosity at a union festival. So it's like most of the time, you know, there's, there's situations where maybe that stuff's not welcomed in that setting, you know, but it doesn't change the fact that if you want to unlock growth and you'd like to be, maybe a little happier than feeling like you got to yell at people in the middle of talks. Cause clearly like he's angry at somebody, which probably is that. Um, it's not you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It can't be. It doesn't even know me good enough. I mean, maybe it's Frank Russo, like some, the schmuck that actually stole money from unions, which I clearly don't agree with. Um, but yeah, who knows? You know, you never know what they're going through. And that, I think that's important that, that you always look at that. You never know what these people are going through whoever it is that hates it's like that it, it so you have to you have to look at that anyway i wanted to uh just dig a little bit deeper into the whole um you know not caring what other people say and, and you clarified in that it's not the fu attitude um from from your upbringing and to you know kind of early success and things like that is it i think i can relate a lot because i think we had similar upbringings in that regard, you know, very religious homes and all, and what, you know, what's expected and all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it was more from a, you weren't, how do I phrase this? It's almost like you weren't given the right to love yourself as you are type of thing. And so you had to do all these things and be successful or you had to check all the boxes. So it's almost like a, a false, uh, persona. Is, is that what it is? And, and like you were, you were in a way lacking a, a form of true confidence in yourself because it was all these external things. Yeah. Or was I it mean, different? No, I mean, at the end of the day, look, we grew up with a lot of pretense. Like, so the one thing I've learned about like the whole religious like space uh, is that 
the bar is so high that it leaves people no choice but to lie to say that they're at that bar. So one of the things I loved about getting into like sobriety and recovery is that, you know, in church, if you, you know, have an affair or if you get caught stealing or whatever, you know, cardinal sin you, you do, nobody wants to sit by you on the pew. Right. So it's like, you know, I mean, it's, it's literally like, don't, don't come by me. I don't want you to F up my life. But then when you get into recovery, if you start saying things like, oh, I'm okay. I'm okay. Yeah, I don't have have a problem. We're like, oh, I don't want you effing up my life. It's literally the exact opposite. It's like you walk in, you know what you are. That's why we're here. Nobody's arguing that. Nobody's accidentally showing up here. And we start from there, you know, and and that's where that's that's a big difference is where you start with. I know that I am an alcoholic, for example. Okay. Right. And I don't try to hide that. And and, yeah. and when I start from there, it actually is what enables all of the growth. And so I think, you know, pretense plays a big role and it's a setup, you know? And so I, tr- we try to do things a little bit differently in my household now with the kids, you know, and it it's not always easy because the truth is what you're, what we really want to give them in the moment is sometimes difficult to do. So we have to keep circling back. And a lot of my work, um, in my new book, which is called Love Your Weird, that I'm working on, that Chat GPT is not writing. Um, it a lot of it is about if you want to lo- unlock authenticity, you want to lo- unlock imagination, you want to unlock generosity, purpose, selflessness, then be like you were when you were five. Start being like you were when you were five. When I was five, you know, one of the things that happened, and I think George, did I see in the chat you went to onsite? Yeah, I did. I when you said you went to experiential treatment in Tennessee, I don't want to yeah, yeah. out you like or something, but yeah, oh, I've, no, I've been no. to onsite. No, hell yeah! When was that? Uh, so I've actually been twice. <laughs> yeah, I've been three um, times. We went. So my wife and I went together. We kind of did it backwards. We went mm-hmm. together for a couple's uh, week. That was in twenty seventeen. Maybe nice. 16, 17. And then I went back again. They did like a a veteran one type where so everyone there's like veteran uh law enforcement mm-hmm. stuff. And that was nice. I think maybe like a year later or so. Um and then my wife went also for in- individual. So you the way you should do it is you go individual to work on your stuff, then yeah. you go as a couple to work on like the marriage stuff. And so I, I don't know how much that plays into you you know, with your first marriage and then with your current one, but that's something that, you know, I've learned the hard way is, um, the dysfunctions that you have from your childhood, if not addressed prior to marriage will come out and they're going to be very difficult to sort out because now you're just creating new sets of wounds that your spouse is totally Mm -hmm. blindsided, blindsided by because, like, well, where'd this come from? And right. you'll react completely irrationally to things that your your spouse is being healthy with, you know, just basic, you know, adulting. Mm-hmm. Um, and your inner child comes out and lashes out. And that and I'm not saying be a victim and like blame your parents. No, go sort it out. Be be a man about it. Go dig into it. Get help for it. Anyway, so that's I'm really getting off into the weeds here. But no, um, yeah, but look, yeah. not really. You're not really getting off in the weeds. You're actually getting right into the into the middle of this right. thing. So I don't, for, I don't know how much <laughs> I meant yeah, for your yeah. initial question of just going, but yeah, no, 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 but no, the, the, 
this is, you know, I'm a big fan of onsite. In fact, I, I hope to create experiences similar to onsite down here in Louisiana at some point. Um, so I, I'm very passionate about that, that, and I, it's, I'm not a therapist or anything like that. I just, I love doing the work. It's changed my yeah. life. And, and one of the biggest things besides taking my phone for a week when I, so <laughs> my, my wife and I went separate, then we went together and then I went to Colorado and did the uh, equine at a dude ranch, which was friggin' awesome. It was right, right before, uh, what's it called? Yellowstone came out. Oh, okay. I gotcha. Oh, so like between Yellowstone and then doing this experiential therapy on a horse, I bought like so many cowboy boots, cowboy hat. Like I was like, my man, I was going hard on the Yellowstone thing for a while. And then about a year ago, I realized, damn it, everybody's doing this. And so now it's kind of a thing that like, unless I buy a ranch, which I ended up buying the second house on the river instead. But unless I get a ranch, like this is not, I'm not going to pull this off. So I still wear the cowboy boots because my inner child was a cowboy, but it was also a TV preacher, an astronaut and an inventor, which by the way, I figured out through uh, the onsite stuff. So I think that's big. I don't think you can be authentic without re-embracing who you changed because essentially five or six is the work they do at onsite. For those of you who haven't been, uh, you, you know, there's different ways that they have you look at it, but essentially that was, that was the last moment before we went from that divergent type thinking into being convergent or in layman's terms, start to be what people are telling me I'm supposed to be. So that's from the system itself. That's from the parents. That's from the bullies at school. And so that's where the love your weird comes from. I actually got that idea the first time I went to onsite while I was there. It's great. Because uh, one of the things besides the phone that I was going to say is that they, you're not allowed to say what you do for a living. So it was the first time that I was stripped from that, that uh, narrative. And yeah. so that was big. That changed my life by itself because I had to spend a week with other successful people. Um, and none of us could talk about it. And, and the connections with yourself and with the other people that happen as a result of that are profound. Yeah. And I've tried to bring that as much as possible into the work I do with, with addicts and alcoholics. And now, you know, as a thought leader doing keynotes around the country. That's great. And, uh, just to reiterate it. So I I really loved how you said that, uh, it's, it's stripping away pretense. So I think, Mm -hmm. I think so many people, men today are living lives where they're surrounded by pretense. And um, if you're living, that makes a lot more sense to me now, your take on authenticity, because it's when you're surrounded by pretense and you're playing the game of the pretense, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. no one, you're not congruent with yourself. Like there's, there's, internal stress that's created because deep down you know that you're it's codependency you're codependent to the whole world around you is what it is Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so yeah that kills you i mean (laughs) um anyway so that's that's a really good clarification i really like the way you stated that because i think that's um the heart of what authenticity should mean is Mm -hmm. removing the pretenses and um i think where you know you kind of alluded to you can talk about your job it's really easy for for men, especially when we're young, right? Coming out of boyhood, mm-hmm. young men, you're in your early twenties, you're you're ready to take on the world and conquer whatever it is you've decided you want to go do, you know, whatever your profession is and things like that. We latch onto that really easily. And so then that just you almost create your own pretense 
in a way if you're not careful because you sacrifice who you really are in the name of your job or your career or whatever and uh that can really lead you down a path of getting stuck into a corner in a way so thanks for sharing uh you know very openly about that journey for you and then expanding upon it with uh you know on site and that kind of stuff so i think justin's got something for you now yeah Absolutely. yeah i mean it's it's so authenticity is such a crazy thing so if you're being not only authentic to other people but to yourself authenticity and failure run hand in hand and i i think that the more you fail and the more you're authentic to yourself about those failures that's it the more you grow mm-hmm. so if you fail and you're authentic about the way you feel and, and you're not afraid about you know the things that you're feeling and and the things that you're going through and you you charge at it kind of head on it, it comes back to like mason sawyer he's one of our guests that came on i don't know if you got to see that episode but he talks about the the analogy and the buffalo and uh the cattle the cattle run with the storm they stay in the storm longer whereas the buffalo charge the storm get through it and reap the rewards quicker mm-hmm. if you're authentic with yourself you're like look i already know what my problems are i know what my failures are i know what these are i know i know what this this and this and this are i know who i my true self is i've figured that out and it took a long time and a lot of work i can now go through to the next point in my life whereas if you're not authentic with yourself you're still carrying baggage, which is slowing you down and keeping you in that storm longer. And that's, that's something that a lot of men don't realize is that you carry baggage. Mm -hmm. Your baggage has to be dealt with no matter if it's self-harm, no matter if it's caused by others or the visions or the views of others or your self-perception because self-perception is a big thing too. You know, your self-perception of your community, that's a big thing. But um, I know as a local community person of your community, I don't think those things about you. I think you're pretty, pretty cool, but you know, that's just personal opinion. But that being said, like, you know, there, there's a lot of things to overcome uh, and, and failure leads to successes. And and I think that's definitely something that I wanted to say about the authenticity thing, because you, you kind of spoke a little bit about it. You know, authenticity is is something you kind of live by. And, and I really appreciate that. That's not a word that's really used much anymore. And people are not authentic. Let's talk about that. Like, Social media, people are so fake. You only see the good in their lives. You don't see the bad. Like I, and I'll tell you what, the the, the most incredible stories and the coolest people on in any social media platform, I don't care what you say, are the people who have failed, who have a cool story, who have been through the mud and the muck and aren't afraid to be authentic about that. It's the people who are fake that people start to realize they're like, look at this person. Like this is kind of over the top, you know, or this is getting a little, you know, this is definitely fake or like their life can't be that good. You know what I mean? Because, yeah, at the end of the day, if you're rich, doesn't make you happy. doesn't make it easier. Sure. I'd rather cry in a Ferrari than, you know, in nothing. But <laughs> at the end of the day, like you're rich based off of what you find <laughs> value in. Anyone that says that money doesn't buy you happiness, look at the fucking smile on my face. Not just <laughs> a Lamborghini would I, I would rather cry in a Lamborghini <laughs> than a Camry. I'm just putting it out the way. Yeah, but, just, just putting it out there, okay? We're never gonna but, get that Toyota sponsorship, Justin. What are we doing? I mean, he drives he drives one of the best Toyotas out there. So Lamborghini yeah, by default. Yeah, you wouldn't think it I didn't pick it. Okay, so my wife always wanted a Land Cruiser. I don't I don't know. Uh, I don't, it, by the way, sorry, Toyota, but $85,000 for a Toyota is not worth it. 
Um, <laughs> if you got eighty five thousand dollars to spend, guys, go buy something else. I'm just gonna tell you straight up. That's cool. That's her, that's <laughs> yeah, if, if you're like, bro, I love it. <laughs> if you're a diehard Toyota fan, then like by all means, it's like the climax, right? But like, I don't give two shits about Toyota, and so like, I like anyway. My wife just had to have it, and then she got it, and then realized, oh, I need a Denali now. So like, okay, so like, I have this one. It's like. So that's why you drive it. <laughs> and, I, and then ever since I sold my company, I'm like, you know what? Like, I, 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 I kind of think like a farmer now, right? Like, I'm like, this car's fine. Like, whatever, you know, and once you get over four point A like, to point B, never, never breaks down. Good to yeah, go. And it's not like it's a bad car. Like to all the Toyota people out there, look at this schmuck. You know, it's like, what a snob, you know what I'm saying? I, th- that's some people's dream car, you know? So I'm not trying to be mean or anything. I just think that they could do better for 85. I'm just saying GM. It has way better features for 85,000. So God bless America. What's left of it. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> That'll be another episode. We'll have to. Yeah. Right. We'll have to contain that to another episode. Um, you're going to get me wound up on that one. So <laughs> uh, I wanted to bring it back to, you know, blended family stuff. So, uh, you well, know, hey, one second. I have a princess. There's a question. Yeah. Oh, it's not a princess. What is it, baby? <laughs> What's your question? It is? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, I'm coming. <laughs> We're almost done with our podcast. Okay, baby? Okay, time for everyone to take a bath. Time for everybody to take a bath. Apparently, it's time for everybody to take a bath, guys. Gotcha. Good to know. All right. Very Sorry, nice. Everybody. Look. No. Uh, she's too shy. She's too shy. But <laughs> okay. You want to get on? I think we're at a 50% interruption rate, right? In our podcast, about half of them have had a kid jump in at some point. Yeah, of <laughs> course. If you're going to do it on a podcast, it has to. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah, what right. it's about. Yeah. Yeah. Par for the I course. Like it. interrupting at 9 o'clock at night. Yeah. And if they're not wearing an Elsa dress and fake blonde hair, it's not real. Yeah, this one is, yeah, this one's real <laughs> blonde hair, just in her panties, though. So I'm kind of glad it didn't get on video. You know, you never know what's yeah. going to leak these days. Yeah. Love you. Baby. Yeah, there's some crazy people in this world. Yeah, I'll be sure. there in a minute, baby. Love you too. All right. Well, there you have it. Okay. So, uh, Brandon, I feel like I, you had some questions. I, I feel like you're kind of falling asleep over there. So you got to jump in on this thing. What's going on, man? Yeah. So, uh, I wanted to kind of get us back on track. You, you were a serial entrepreneur before you started doing keynote speaking and all that stuff. So what made you decide to, to go from being a, a highly successful, um, entrepreneur to changing to more of an altruistic, uh, lifestyle that that's purpose-driven? What, what shifted you that way? So it was actually kind of going back to my roots. So you got to think about it like this. When I was five years old, I got moved to Pittsburgh, uh, Beaver Falls to be exact, home of Joe Namath. Uh, We went there for three years, and that was where my dad went to seminary, learned how to uh, run homeless shelters and do inner city missions. So I grew up till I was 18 in inner city missions, you know, actually helping poor people that were in need. So when you get out of that, two things happened. First of all, my dad got kicked out of his ministry at 18. So not only was I poor as a kid, then he got kicked out of the ministry. I was like, screw this. I'm never doing anything remotely like this. So I went the other direction. So I didn't originally what I wanted was I was just, I didn't want to feel what it felt like to be poor anymore. That the anxiety that came with it, like, you know, my mom kind of wore it on her sleeve, but I love you, mom. But, you know, that was a thing that affects kids. And so I grew up, I was like, I'm not going to be like this. And, and they, they were, had less than other people for a good reason, but still like, and I kind of walked away from it. Like, was it a good enough reason? Like, this is what you get at the end is a kick, kick out the door. So that kind of jaded me for a while. That was what really ramped up my 
alcoholism, drug addiction. I just was like threw the towel in on all, a lot of that stuff. So for about 10 years, I, there was no altruism. Um, I, it was still deeply rooted inside of me though. So once I started doing a business that I could really believe in, cause for a while I basically was in the mortgage business. Okay. And I, I think I talk about this in the books and, and it's one of those things where I, I went through this, this season leading up to, by the way, 2008. So I got sober the same year that the, the entire world economics melted down. I'm not saying that I had anything to do with the meltdown. I'm just saying that the timing is, you know, uncanny. So, you know, I, I had become kind of like the Lafayette Wolf of Wall Street. And like, I wasn't actually Wolf of Wall Street level if any federal people are uh, watching this. Um, but, uh, and, and it may be on the phone. I mean, I may have tapped. who knows? You know, but whatever. So I went through this time when I was just like, oh, I don't need it. I don't need to answer to anybody. You know, I went through that. Like I raged the 20s mentality. I went full throttle. You know what I'm saying? Did it all. Blah, blah, blah. Um, so it, was, it wasn't so much that it was like this like wake up call where I was a certain way my whole life. And then I had this like white light moment. Now I need to like give my life to altruism. It was a, it was over time. And what actually got me back connected with altruism was getting sober. Okay. So basically, um, getting sober and realizing that the only way to stay sober is to help other people get sober. Um, and the magic that happens from that, that's what reawoke. Okay. This is the grit. Cause I, I wasn't buying anything they were selling from a religious standpoint anymore. I was totally jaded with all that, but I was like this right here. This is the guts of unconditional love and like what was being actually said before it was added. All this crap got added on top of it. Okay. And I'm not going to get into religion tonight, but like, you know, for me, the big thing was that I knew that I had a higher calling. I always knew that whether I really did or didn't, I don't know, but I, I, I had it just baked into me. So I started to work that out with, with, uh, doing the volunteering um, for helping other people get sober. And then that actually changed my life a bit. And, and what I realized was that, wow, there's a lot more to unlocking this. In fact, I was trying to figure out how do you make money and be successful in America and feel like you're living a mission. That's a very difficult thing. Okay. And you're not going to pull that off at just volunteering at church. It's not going to happen. It's not the same as when you go to Africa and build an orphanage, you know, or go to Mexico and, and build houses or all those things that some of us have got to experience. I went to 40 countries before I was 25, mostly on mission trips. Right. So this, this was pumped in. Right. Um, and that's where the book idea came. I started writing the book probably in 2013. It took me three years to write. It came out in 2016, the first one. Uh, but I knew I wanted to try to figure out a way to help others at a larger scale. So I still think it's so important to have what I call a ground game. And my ground game is that like, like just tonight, like, I mean, I've, I've probably talked to four or five guys this evening. I'd probably owe a couple more. Like I, I'm never going to let go of that ground game of helping other alcoholics and drug addicts get sober. I'm never letting that go. Cause the second I do and think that the only game is the book. So the only game is, you know, maybe I'll just take care of my family or the only game is the keynotes. It's like, no, if, the, the secret to my success straight up for the last 15 years is that I keep a strong ground game and it's playing offense. Like you're, you're, yeah. you're essentially taking care of yourself 
uh, exactly. getting in the routine to avoid the temptation or the distractions or whatever so that you know you're waking up and getting after it on on your mission it keeps you on track and 100% and there's yeah. not that many opportunities to do that in America and that's what's so profound about the system that you know I'm, I can't mention which system it is you can imagine which one it is but not allowed to mention it in the press but what I will tell you is that uh, even people like Mother Teresa have mentioned that system as one of the greatest gifts that Western civilization has given to spirituality. And that's for Mother Teresa herself. So there's some there's some stuff there and I've got to live that. And so what happens is, is that I want to live an extraordinary life. I want to live an extraordinary existence. OK, one wife isn't enough. I got to have two, three kids isn't enough. I got to have six, one business enough. I got to have five. You see what I'm saying? I want to I, I want to live at that level. Right. And I'm going to tell you, uh, you have to match that level of, well, quite frankly, calamity and chaos uh, with something. You got to match that. And if you don't, you end up defaulting to like, oh, I'm going to just gamble my feelings away. I'm going to eat my feelings away. I'm going to snort my feelings away or I'm going to screw my feelings away. You know, that's what ends up happening as a default, right? Because you want this extraordinary life. You want this big life, but like you, you don't have anything to like match it with. And what I have found is that like you can match it, uh, but you've got to lean into it and you've got to match that with something else. And that's what happened for me is that I replaced one drug for another drug. And that drug is the limitless drug. And that drug essentially is a deeper connection with, with a power that's greater than you. Okay. Yep. You call it, call it what you want, but that is the limitless drug is, is, is an ongoing connection to a much more powerful thing than you. And what I have found is that nothing unlocks that as much as helping somebody that's poor with your hands, not with your check. And I think one of the things that you had mentioned was that you're, you're purposely and intentionally surrounding yourself with people that are equally hungry and the same growth mindset that, that, that you're trying to achieve, right? You, you have people around you that are also trying to be the best versions of themselves and trying to get free of whatever uh, addiction that they're suffering from. And mm -hmm. so in your book and step four, you use MJ as an example of someone who builds and rebuilds his team. And mm -hmm. so I feel like that's kind of your way of how you've built and rebuilt your team. Cause you know um, he, he had to surround himself with the best quality of team players. Right. And um, so my question to you is who did you surround yourself with to win and how did you find them? Yeah. So, you know, most of the time they found me. Now they didn't Google me or actually come find me, but what it is that happened was that my circumstances led me to them. Now I, I had to be open-minded and for the most part, I had to be desperate. So my team ended up being a combination of like um, my sponsor was 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 and is one, you know, uh, my spouse is one. Um, from a business standpoint, I was blessed to get a mentor in 2010. Um, I mentioned some of these folks in, in the book. And, and so my mentor. um it, it really came to me on that one, but I, I, I leaned into it and, and really held on and, and really nurtured that relationship. But you, you need a mentor, if not multiples, you got to be taking direction from someone. Um, 
because and 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 they don't all have to have the answers. Usually, it's it's a combination. Um, it really what it boils down to is that the reason why I put that in there about the team being so important, and I use my you know Michael Jordan for as an example just to get people's attention, right? But at the end of the day, it, it's true for all of us. It, the team piece is is critical because that's the that's the part where I have to be humble enough to take direction, willing to take direction, willing to have somebody give me an idea. That's not my idea. And, and th- that's really important. And, uh, you know, this idea of getting out of yourself while being true to yourself is kind of this like weird paradoxical thing that, that we all live through every day. Um, and being able to strike a balance there is, is key. Yeah, you've got to be stretched and challenged by someone that can yeah, and, and, draw and you out have of to, you, you know, and you have to, you have to be able to battle test whatever great ideas. I always tell the guys I work with, it's like, look, if you got a good idea, give me a call, you know, talk to me about it before you do. Right. If you got a great idea, you need to come find my ass because essentially like that's where we F it up is with our great ideas. And I always say, if the idea is that great, I should be able to run it by somebody that's in my circle and it's still a great idea. Justin, I feel like you had some sort of mic drop thing or Brandon. Did I answer that? Yes, you did. You did great. And I'm just, I, I'm just looking at this chat. I'm like, Oh my God, Justin, gold star. We're losing him. <laughs> you did it. Nope. We lost yeah, I, think, him. I think we did. Lose him. So, um, I think <laughs> one <of> the best, <laughs> you had a quote in your book. Um, and it's if Thomas Edison had quit when things got tough, we might all still be in the dark. And I mm. thought that was such a great, nice. great quote. So, what made you almost quit in your past and how did you overcome it? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, I've had a lot of moments of, of almost quitting. Um, you know, when my first business failed, I thought that was the end. I thought that was the one shot that I was going to have an opportunity to make money and I was going to have to go back to being poor. Um, I walked to work for a year, um, sold my sports car. And I did that because I, I believed in something that I needed to do next, which was create the next company, which was Potenza. Um, it was a make-believe company and we made clients believe in our, us. And then we made the whole community believe in the client's product, whatever it was. Um, essentially it was branding, but you know, that, that was a, a really pivotal moment for me when, when kind of the world fell apart and I had to, you know, have lost there, lost the business, lost, um, one of the things I loved a lot, which was drugs. And, um, then I also, you know, went through loss with divorce, you know, and then I also had other companies fail, you know, it wasn't until my fifth company that I really found success and, you know, had that level of growth, um, that we saw from continuing to learn from, the previous iterations and learn from the failures. Um, I do take the Edison concept very seriously, you know, that he, he didn't fail um, 10,000 times or however many experiments he did. He just found 9,999 ways that didn't work. And so, you know, that concept is important to note, by the way, like if you want to do something great, you need to have a very good relationship with failure. You need to see it as an opportunity every single time. And as much as it hurts, you've got to really look for opportunities to 
get uncomfortable. One of my friends who's also a thought leader has a book called Hunting Discomfort. Um, and that's Sterling Hawkins, obviously. And he's, uh, he and I have gone through similar things and we, we kind of see eye to eye on that. That is a non-negotiable. If you want to be successful, you want to grow, you're going to have to be authentic. You're going to have to get honest about the problem. You're going to have to be able to imagine a world that doesn't exist yet. And then you're going to have to be very selfless in the journey along the way. That's good. I was going to ask if you think that, that, uh, the Edison principle and kind of just not giving up like that, how that applies to fatherhood. Cause I think it's really easy to connect that to like business ventures and yeah, you know, yeah, sports yeah, yeah. and stuff, well, but it's a little bit more nebulous when it comes to fatherhood. Right. So, yeah, well, first of all, fatherhood is every night. So it's like, <laughs> however many nights I've had kids, that's how many nights have failed. Uh, but yeah, kids, what? Yeah. Like, I mean that every turn they're like reminding you of your, your frailty, your, your weaknesses, you know, and then the more you have of them, the more like bright the freaking mirror is on like who you are. And it's just like, you can't hide because uh, you're literally watching yourself yep. look around. You know, it's like, what? My wife and I joke all the time when our daughter acts a certain way. I'm like, oh, she gets that from you. That's for me. Like, it's friendly. It's not accusing or whatever. But it's, yeah, you're, we're both like, yeah, that's us. <laughs> Guilty. But I think, it, you know, yeah, speaking absolutely. of pretense, tying it all together too with pretense. I think that's a huge pretense, um, especially for like newer parents that you're going to like magically have it all figured out and you're never going to mess it up and all that kind of stuff. And I remember like some of the, for me, the, the hardest moments um, where I felt like I couldn't come back from it is when I messed something up as dad, you know, um, raised your voice too much or you did something you really regret. Um, the first time that happens there's that moment of like, Oh my gosh, there's no coming back from this. You know, I'm the worst dad ever. And I think every man has a moment like that, probably multiple moments like that. And I just want to shatter that pretense that, you know, if you're doing your best and you're genuinely trying to learn from it and you make amends and you apologize for when you make those mistakes, like your kid needs you still in the fight, you know, they, well, they don't course. need you to yeah. disappear. And uh, yeah, I think, I think that's a misconception obviously is that, you know, we're supposed to be, these perfect parents. And it's like this, like, first of all, what is a perfect parent? Clearly none of us, our parents were, and we still love some of them. And, um, you know, we just, I think the hardest thing as a parent is to be willing to really put myself back in where, I, where was I at five years old? And what would I have wanted to be taught knowing everything I know now? And like, you got to put yourself back there. And that's not always easy to honestly do that. But really at the end of the day, the best we're going to do with these kids is, and this is kind of, I don't have a lot of rules in the house. But I do want to try to teach three core values and, and everything that we do have rules around is around these. And it's pretty simple. Uh, kindness, right? So that means like you're not going to hit anybody. You're not going to yell at the other kids or, you know, whatever. Gratitude, which means that like you're looking for opportunities to be grateful and respect. I mean, if you get those three things as a parent, like congratulations. I mean, that that's <laughs> yeah. that's that, and you, you, we, we have these. We have these big ideas of what we want for kids. Like, dude, you do that for a kid. Like you have a kid that grows up and they're grateful and they're kind and they're, uh, you know, what was yeah, that gives them the foundation. Like different birds. Yeah. Become an adult. yeah. Yeah. When, when they're an adult, if that's their foundation, they'll, they'll be able to figure out the things that, that helps us learn. not have too many other pretenses. Cause it's easy right. to get into a lot of roles and it's, and it's annoying. Like some of the stuff the kids do, 
is freaking annoying. But then it, all this work I've been doing of researching how like, hey, you're an adult now. You want to figure out how to unlock authenticity, selflessness, and imagination. And I'm taking you back to when you were five. It's hard. For, it, that's a that's a real accountability for me. When I come home, my wife knows my body of work. She knows my content. So like she likes to remind me sometimes it's like, you know, so it's a, that's probably been one of the biggest things. It's a great, it's the right kind of accountability because it's something I'm passionate about. So it's, it's been interesting as I've done more of my own inner child work. And then now like I'm kind of the spokesperson for inner child work a little bit. Uh, it's, uh, it's definitely different when the litmus test is <laughs> a, yeah. a, a live five. Yeah. My, well, uh, my wife has made a really good uh, point a couple times. She said, uh, don't make the title of your podcast ironic. If I'm hanging out with my kid and playing on my phone, <laughs> like yes. I am not being present. Oh, oh, my gosh. Oh, exactly. That's so good. <laughs> Kim's a monster, man. She gets you. She knows you Dude, too well. That, exactly. No, that, that's, that, they, they love to, to drop that in. And it's always in these moments where they're like, <laughs> oh, you're but, being real authentic right now. Like, I mean, she's <laughs> dropped that a couple times and like, I lost my shit a little bit. I, I was like, okay, I got to go outside and have a cigarette. Yeah. Is, what did he press this? So, yeah, just come down the street and come talk to me, bro. I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, like they're, they're, those, like the one thing, like it, I'm kind of like Marty McFly, you know, when they would, it would get him cornered and they'd call him yellow or chicken. Y'all remember that? Y'all are back to the future. Mm, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. That, oh, 100%. So, so my like yellow chicken thing, that's like, call me a liar one more time. You know what I'm saying? Or call me inauthentic one more time. Like, I'm, uh, you know, I'm wrecking my own. Well, I can't play guitar anymore. <laughs> it's it's so funny. So, like, we, we just covered a few topics that I kind of want to reiterate that. So we talked about a little bit about, you know, surrounding yourself and, and who you surround yourself in the community you have is such a big impact on on who you are, not only as a man or as, as an entrepreneur or, you know, this, that, or the other, as a father. And we don't think about that concept. We don't grasp that concept enough that the men we keep around us mold us. And, you know, we, we, we didn't, we talked about it before the show, but masculinity, you know, holding ourselves accountable. That's part of masculinity. Mm -hmm. You know, if we have masculine men around us who also hold us accountable, they're letting us know, Hey, you screwed up, but guess what? That's part of fatherhood. Like having a support group. And, and I challenge anybody listening to this, please, please join our discord. Please join any of our socials. Follow us. We want to hear from you guys because someone like Frankie has been through it. They, they understand what you are going through. If, if this is similar to your story and, and I want fathers to understand like every father fails, every father mm -hmm. needs community. Every father needs masculine men around them because yeah. if you don't have those things as a man, it, it's, you don't have someone holding you accountable. You don't have someone help you. Yes, you don't have someone to help you grow on and a daily basis and give you the the push when you're not ready to be pushed. Like it's it's so much more than just hey, you know, we need accountability. We need good people around us. Like it's a combination of everything. And I don't think mm -hmm. that's something that a lot of men recognize or, or grasp the fact of is like. You need a community. You need a tribe. You need people who are lions. You need people who are softer because when you're being an idiot or an a-hole, they need you to calm the hell down and be like, all right, look, you know, you're messing up. This is you're you're going at this a little aggressive. Or if you're not being aggressive enough, you need like, hey, you want your kid to be tougher? Do this. Get on the mat with them. Like like Cody Jefferson said, he doesn't just, you know, teach 
and preach wrestling, he gets on the mat with his kids. Like, yeah, that's what a father should do is, is be hands-on, be present, you know, be part of it. And, and that's what we kind of try to preach, but like, that's something that we don't really drive home a lot. And that's something I just kind of wanted to say, because some of the things you have said has resonated with all those different things. So yeah, that's, that's just something I wanted to touch on because those things combined are so much more powerful than one or the other. No doubt. No doubt. So Frankie, uh, what is the, for in your eyes, the most rewarding thing about being a father? Hmm. Let me think about that. I hate to say this, but I think like that feeling of being wanted is just pretty selfishly profound. Um, especially at the ages I have my kids in the house right now, it's just like it, and it's, it's actually a double-edged sword because a lot of times it's, uh, it's a lot when they want your attention, you know, and it, it can be overwhelming. Uh, but I've, I've learned to really like try to lean into it because I know that, it's not going to last forever. And I know that literally every parent wishes they had it back. So you, you, you hear these things from people and there's two things I've heard over and over again from literally every parent I've ever met. And so I have to, I have to assume that, that this is the truth. And so far it has proven that uh, one is that it goes very fast. Um, and two is that like you miss it when it's gone. So, I try to think about that anytime like I'm feeling overwhelmed, like maybe I'm stressed out or like I'm trying to work on like some new talk or some project or launch a company or blah, 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 all the stuff that like we, we work on and they really want my attention. I try to re really remember it in those moments um, that it's, there's not that much time left. I mean, essentially there's 13 more years for the youngest to be out. There's only five for my oldest to be out the house. And so I gotta, I gotta stay present in this cause I'm not getting it back. And, and I already know what it feels like to live with regrets. And like in those moments, I try to remember what that feels like and not create a new regret. That's good, man. I like Oof, that. That's powerful. Any, uh, final fatherly advice for all the dads out there? Yeah, um, don't fuck it up. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> That's what they no, tell you I when mean, you take command. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, like, the best fatherly advice is show the fuck up. You know, that's for real. Like, that, don't worry about fucking it up. You'll do that. But just show up, man. You got you to gotta show up. And sometimes I got to put the phone down. And I just have to be in the moment and say that it's as worth as a, because I'm not looking on my phone when I've met with billionaires. Okay. And I haven't got to meet with that many billionaires, but when I have, after I was done, like, you know, peeing my pants, cause I was so nervous, I didn't have my phone out. Okay. Absolutely. Positively did not have my phone out. I have no idea what happened on my phone for that hour. I can assure you that. And so am I willing to give that same thing to my kid? It's, you know, I'm sure you guys talk about, the phone thing a lot on this podcast, but like it's, it's a thing and just showing up uh, for them and being present. I mean, 
that's the stuff that everybody talks about. Nope, nobody. I when I went to onsite, George, you probably can experience this. I didn't meet one person that was like, oh, you know, I'm so hurt because my parents got divorced. No, everybody that was like had me in their sculpt as their father as they're beating the heck out of a <laughs> with a fake bat, imagining that I'm their father. Um, you know, every single one of them. It was because they they felt abandoned. They're their father or their mother wasn't there for them, period. They don't give a shit about the other stuff. They don't give a shit about the details. It's like either they, either we're there for them or they were there for us or they weren't. It's not something that you can like shortchange. And then adding like pony rides and buying them stuff only creates more anxiety. And then now all of a sudden you have this adult kid and you're wondering, oh, why don't they want to talk to me? Why don't they like me? It's like, because like they grew up and realized like what the world really is and realized like you're kind of not the person that they want to hang out with now that they've grown up and had the choice. And I think that's the, that's the nightmare, right? Is that like you create this space where your kid doesn't feel like they um, want to come back to you. And I can tell you for sure for my wife and, and me right behind her, but I mean, my wife is, has one objective in this life. And that is like, create children that that want to come home when they get older you know yeah. creative space yeah create a space where people want to come home that's the freaking limit and there's going to be seasons like i mean i i pretty much 18 to 25 i pretty much is a throwaway years like if if your kids don't want to come back that much during 18 to 25 that doesn't even count like they got a little freedom yeah yeah that doesn't even count well they're out you starting know. to build their life i mean they're figuring themselves yeah. out at that point so it's a little different yeah. And I think the other thing too, is like, don't find your identity in your kids. Like for God's sakes, like it's, that was one thing my parents never did. And it, that was the greatest gift they gave us. My brother's a doctor, you know, I've done a couple things. My, my other brother is an entrepreneur. My, uh, sister is a psychologist. Like, so it's not like we haven't excelled and it wasn't from any pressure from them whatsoever. And, uh, we always knew we could be whatever we wanted to be. And, um, that was a gift that they gave us and I'm better for it. That's awesome, man. All right. So I got one final question for you. And this is something we try to ask every dad. What is a story or a core memory that you have with your kids that just really sticks out to you? Like a sore thumb that you really just appreciated or you think about quite often. Yeah, that's a good one. Gosh. Uh, so many it's hard because you have to choose yeah. from so many but just just one that comes up quick there you go i i keep thinking about uh christmas at uh the other house that we have on the lake that we did this last year and some of the adventures we've had out there um why that 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 comes to mind because i feel like it's like it was getting that space and that property was was about unlocking some more of the adventure that we have um, uh, I just saw your chat. <laughs> Dustin, I'm, I'm gonna bust Dustin out. He said, yeah, no, oh, yeah, that's good. Say it, Dustin. Yeah. You gotta Which say kid it. Never... do you pick that you love the most out of the six? Yeah, you yeah. notice how I didn't. Wh whichever didn't kid you say the memory for, you obviously love the other five less, right? So, yeah, yeah, no. So we I put only, you on the spot. It's a no win situation. I only grabbed for, I wasn't even trying to grab for memories that were a single kid. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> I probably could do it easier if I did that, but 
that wasn't even, I wasn't even going there. That or we're going to have to give six memories either way. Yeah, so. there's only one cardinal rule in my house and that, you know, and it's not my rule. It's, you know, I don't know whose rule it is, but like, you, you know, everybody's super careful about that. And then if the other spouse has a sneaking suspicion of who the favorite is, like, God forbid, because never have my wife and I had the same favorite. Like, obviously, nobody has a favorite, but I mean, come on, who are we kidding, guys? Everybody knows who their favorite is. We just don't talk about it. All right. So and I'm sure you can talk about it. <laughs> well, I 100 percent have a favorite because I only have one. So, yeah, congratulations. That's total cop out. <laughs> Total cop out, but that's fine. Yeah, so I, I, you know, th- I, I do love them all in different ways. So it's it, you know, the more I, I go as a father, I, I can't say that I have a favorite. There's different moments that are going to be amazing with your kid, and I could go on and on. But but back to in, back to what you were talking about. You're yeah. About so what I was talking about was like, so yeah, basically it was, it, and it is because we got that space to create a sense of community, to get offline, to go out on the boat, and to to dig. Like, cause you know, you, you live in our neighborhood, Justin, like, it's not exactly like a neighborhood where people just get to dig dirt and crap like that. And my boys like love to pee in you the You don't get invited to the get together? Yeah, no, they, they're like <laughs> just effing up the landscaping. I don't even know why Tracy got the number for your landscaping guy. Cause like the kids are just going <laughs> to F it up. So it's like, I had to get this other property where they can like dig holes to China and, you know, just be it. kids. And that, that's been some pretty special memories as a, a commune you know because once you have eight people you're i think technically a commune um i don't even think i think i'm actually breaking the neighborhood uh whatever what do they call that the homeowners association i'm I'm fairly confident i'm breaking it they actually called me the guy across the street i don't know he's not gonna watch this because i I know who he is i'm not gonna name (laughs) names but yes okay i'm familiar okay so apparently you're only supposed to have two trash cans all right well i have a big house i have three trash cans and recycling bin all right the guy got my trash cans picked up. Like, like I had a, I had an assistant what? that was working in the home at the time. Yeah. So she called the utilities and said, yeah, the homeowner association called it in. Like what? I bought that trash can. Like, what are you talking about? Anyway, I got it added. And then she, my assistant at the time, like had some words with, with old boy. And so, uh, you know, they made an exception, but now I want to go put out three and just fill one with cinder blocks and just see what yeah. happens. <laughs> Dude, t- trust me. Put out three plus a recycling bin. You're 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 in you're in deep water with the homeowner association. Speaking of pretense, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Love it. Oh man. All right. Well, Frankie, we really appreciate you uh, coming on and just your your candor and sharing your your story. But before we go, want to let you uh, plug where the best place is for people to follow you and get in touch with you. So I know you got the website, FrankieRusso.com. Yep. Anywhere else people should go to look for you, or is, is that pretty it, much the it, best place? Anywhere but Reddit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you're on Twitter X and Instagram yeah, and all that kind of I'm, stuff. My too. books in all the all the places books are sold. Um and yeah, so yeah, Frankie Russo. I ended up having to pay a lot of money just to get my own name, bunch of pirates. I, I used to have the hyphen and I was like, you know what, let's just keep it simple. It's Frankie Yo, yo, I got cats what's killing the country. That's right. Damn capitalist, you know. But um but yeah, man, FrankieRusso.com. It's all it's easy. Um I'm I monitor the social media and, and have some help with that. So, you know, if you reach out, I'm always always happy to chat and talk. And um but yeah, in general, uh looks like they're turning down the lights in here. Uh you don't have yeah, to go this home. Was awesome. you can't stay here. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Like I actually am home. 
but they were they clearly sending me the message like go ahead <laughs> this was awesome guys you know I, this was a lot of fun and and um i hope this was helpful for you guys i i feel like we definitely leaned in i i don't know if i've said all of this stuff in one recording before so Love minus it, the audible book i guess but even that doesn't have some of this good stuff so good man no, it was it was a real pleasure and uh again we just thank you for sharing your story with our audience and and being uh transparent so uh we'll live authentically and uh all right without further ado uh dads let's start climbing the mountain together we'll see you in the next one thanks for tuning in to this episode of the present fathers podcast make sure that you subscribe to our youtube channel and follow us on spotify to catch all of our amazing episodes we will see you in the next one